Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of TheMindRenewed.com coming to you kind of as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK or rather after a short break in programming after the passing of my late father and uh, let me say once again thank you to all of you who sent in messages of condolence, uh, very much appreciated. Thanks ever so much for doing that. Of course, a difficult time, uh, but life carries on. And uh, hopefully this show is, as of now, back on the road. And uh, today we're going to be speaking at the beginning of that road, once again, with F. Remy, I've got it wrong, F. Remy Diederich, <laughs> who <laughs> joined us last year to speak about his book, Broken Trust, which I very much recommend. Um, if you haven't heard that conversation, I think it was TMR 185, something like that, and I called it Toxic Faith. Uh, it's in the 180s, anyway. He joins us this day to speak about a different matter, which I hope will be equally interesting. Remy is lead pastor and founder of Cedarbrook Church in Menominee, Wisconsin, currently with an emphasis on teaching in that role. He's also a consultant at Arbor Place Addiction Treatment Center, and he coaches pastors in the Evangelical Covenant Church. He is the author of several books, one of which we talked about, and he's married with three adult children. Remy, thanks ever so much for coming back on the show. It's good to speak to you again. You too, Julian. And uh, let me add my condolences to the ones that you got from your other listeners. Thanks very much. That's really good of you. I'm sorry about your name, by the way. I'm bound to get it wrong throughout the conversation. Well, that's just the nature of having a different name. So I'm used to it. You say it's, it's, uh, it comes from a French name, doesn't it? So it's now anglicized. Yeah. And it's, it's tricky to do that. Right. Um, we're going to be talking about the subjects of temptation and self-control, which are the subjects of some, I think, very interesting blog pieces that you wrote a while ago over at your website, um, which I know you've been preaching on at your church and elsewhere, no doubt. These are not perhaps the most crowd-pulling of subjects, in that uh, I think subjects like that have tended to get a bit of a bad press in our cultures these days, our rather permissive cultures these days, certainly here in the West. But I think, uh, nevertheless, they're very important subjects for the Christian and indeed for the non-believer, as I think will come out in our conversation. But before we get on to that, let me ask you first about what you're doing at the moment. You are on, I believe, sabbatical in Mexico City. First of all, thanks ever so much for speaking to us while you're on sabbatical. Um, how is that going? Oh, it's gone very well. It's um, you. You contacted me. I think I might have been in the airport leaving on sabbatical, and then you went into uh, your situation there. And now we're reconnecting. So I'm almost done now. It's been six, uh, five and a half weeks. I have a few days left. I spent some time uh, in language school with my wife for three weeks, and we spent another week. Sightseeing, and then the last two weeks we uh, are spending time with a church down here that we support, and I've been doing quite a bit of teaching here as well. Mm. So it's not just a holiday by any means, is it? By the sound of that, anyway. No, I'm kind of a doer by nature, so I couldn't sit on a beach for six weeks and read a book. <laughs> that I just that wouldn't work with me. Which is why you said yes to doing this. Well, it's very good of you. Thanks ever so much. Right. <laughs> um, okay, so the subject, temptation and self-control. Well, you know, what can we say about this? Seems like an invitation to preach, <laughs> you know, in that colloquial sort of negative sense, a rant about what we should or should not be doing. But that's not how you write in these, I think, very interesting articles over at your blog. You talk about things in a very practical way, very helpful way, um, really trying to stress uh, the importance of these things in our lives. But the fact that actually we can do something about this, if only we realize ourselves, you know, understand ourselves better. I think that's really helpful. And I'm hoping this conversation will, will bring some of those points out for all of us to learn from. You have two articles in particular that I thought were very helpful. 
Um, one called Four Roadblocks to Self-Control, one called Temptation and How to Develop Self-Control. I'll give links to those, of course, and invite people to go and look at those for themselves. Um, so my first question to you really is, you know, why did you think it was important to address subjects like these, you know, sort of non-sexy subjects? Right. You know, why, why the emphasis in your teaching? Well, it, I taught these in my church and posted the blogs in January in the month when everyone, you know, likes to talk about resolutions. And I really don't like the discussion of resolutions because they never seem to be very effective. And I thought, you know, I, I want to go a little bit deeper. I want to look at why it is we keep going through these cycles of trying and then failing and then trying and then failing. And we do it as Christians. I mean, it, this is just a human problem. It's not a Christian problem. But certainly as Christians, we are dedicated, hopefully, to be following Jesus and obeying his teaching. And a lot of times we say we're going to do it, and we just don't. And I thought, there's got to be some psychology behind this that would be helpful to, you know, rather than just tell people, okay, people, it's another year, let's try to follow Jesus better, you know? Yeah. And, then we, yes. and then we all agree to do that for a year, and then we all fail by February. So I thought, that I think we're missing something. You know, just quoting the Bible verses isn't enough. So maybe we can help understand the psychology, you know, what's going on in our mind that might help us in it. I came across this book, uh, The Willpower Instinct by Kelly McGonigal, and I found it just very helpful. And it really, I found it working hand in glove with scripture. Yes, you mentioned that that book was very influential in what you're doing. And I'm sorry, by the way, to be flippant, but I've got to mention, I know sure. that one of my resolutions is not to make resolutions, um, for precisely <laughs> the reason that you say. I know that's so old hat, but I had to say it. Um, how have people actually responded to your teaching in these areas? Have they been receptive or have they you know, looked upon it as, oh, I don't really want to listen to that kind of thing? No, I, th I think it's been very positive, very favorable. I think anyone who wants to improve fights with these questions every day. You know, uh, how can I do better? How can I improve? How can I go to the next level? Why don't I? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I got a lot of good feedback on it. Mm. Would you agree that there's a tendency in our cultures not to preach on these matters? I mean, I, that's the impression that I get. I think so. I, I think the, the, the message yeah. in, in the church has, has leaned heavily towards forgiveness, which is certainly a good message. Uh, but I think people confuse grace with only forgiveness. Grace is much more than forgiveness. Grace is the, it simply means gift. It's the gift of God. So forgiveness is a gift of God, but so is self-control. And so it's much easier to preach about forgiving people for lack of self-control than preaching about how God wants to give you self-control. In fact, I find it interesting in the book of Acts uh, when Paul is, uh, when Luke is actually describing the ministry of Paul. He's, he's quoting Paul and Paul is preaching and he says he is summing up the, the kingdom of God as being righteousness, self-control and the judgment to come. So I don't know how many preachers today would would say that self-control is central to their the message of the preaching of the gospel. Yes, indeed. I think a lot would say it's about self-realization or something like that, uh, but uh, that's another matter. Sure. Um, it's interesting that you say that self-control is a gift of God, because that brings me actually to my first question about this article, this uh, blog piece, uh, Four Roadblocks, because the title is Four Roadblocks to Self-Control, and it immediately crossed my mind to people who are perhaps not Christian uh, reading that. Might they think that this is a sort of rather humanistic word sort of implies that uh, it's all about self and its achievements, but you wouldn't be saying that, would you? Well, no, I mean, it, like I said, Paul used the word, or Luke used, quoted Paul using the word himself, that self-control, it's something, 
that's why it's a gift. God gives us the gift of controlling our urges, controlling our thinking, our thoughts, our actions. So well, more than, uh, yes, more than other it, it people, you mean? Us, but God's going to help us with it. Right. So more than people who have not come to faith in Christ, you would say? Um, I'm not quite clear. Restate your question. Well, the question is, is self-control for the Christian something that is enhanced by this gift? I mean, all people have some capacity for self-control. Are you saying that the Christian at least should be taking hold of that which God has given, which is an enhanced ability for self-control? Yes, I, I, you know, I think as humans, we, we have the ability to control ourselves somewhat. But uh, the, the Holy Spirit, as Paul said in Galatians, the Holy Spirit gives us, it's a fruit of the Spirit of God being inside of you. Okay. Yeah, you um, say that self-control is beneficial to us uh, generally. I presume you're, you're speaking about all people, really. Sure. Well, uh, a lot of modern culture rejects the idea of self-control because there's this idea that it's limiting. It's not allowing you to realize, you know, who you, you really should be. Better to go with your feelings, you know, to be true to yourself, those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. But you speak in ways to suggest that self-control is beneficial to us, whoever we are, in very, very practical ways in our lives. And what I'd like you to describe is what do you mean by that? I mean, in what ways can self-control generally be so beneficial to us? Well, it's interesting that we we prize so many things that require self-control. I mean, if you go to a concert, the reason we spend money on that concert is because someone spent a lot of time and self-control developing the talent of singing or playing an instrument. Mm-hmm. If you think about the Olympics, how much we uh, prize the people who spend hours every day preparing for the Olympics. And when they succeed, they get gold medals. And so we, we are always in our culture prizing and esteeming people who have shown self-control in their life to develop an aspect of their life and, and brought it under control to a place of excellence. So I don't think it's very hard to understand why self-control makes people successful. And the most successful people in life are people who have been able to exhibit self-control. Hmm. Okay, well, a roadblock here is lack of self-awareness, you say. And what kind of thing are you driving at there? I mean, I'm aware of myself. Uh, you are aware of yourself. What, what is it that we could be lacking in our self-awareness that impacts this? Well, I think there's a lot of things that weaken our self-control, and we're just not aware of it. A, a simple one is sleep. I think many people, right. at least in the United States, are sleep-deprived. And we're just not aware of that. We don't think about that. We don't think about the fact that six hours of sleep or less a night isn't good for us. Yet you're making very important decisions on six hours of sleep, and those decisions might be very poor. Our ability to control our thoughts or our actions is weakened by the fact that we're not getting enough sleep. Mm. In fact, that happened to me years ago. I was getting depressed, and I had never been depressed in my entire life. And I couldn't figure out what it was, and I was trying different things. And then I read an article that suggested that if you don't get eight hours of sleep a night or more, that you're highly likely to become depressed. And I thought, huh, well, I'm not getting eight hours of sleep a night. I hadn't even thought about that. And I started to sleep eight or eight, eight and a half hours a night, and the depression left immediately. And so that was just something in my life that I wasn't aware of, but yet it was weakening me, and I'm sure it was weakening me in my decision-making and, and as well as my self-control. Mm. 
And you say that uh, stress can also have this kind of effect, I suppose, stress coming from all sorts of factors. Work, of course, is the one that one tends to think of immediately. Sure. Very difficult to control that, though, isn't it? Because these things are, you know, that's part of the definition of it, isn't it? That these are things that you cannot control that are happening in your life, or at least you think you cannot control. And that produces this uh, this reaction in you. Right, right. How can you control something that seems so uncontrollable, such as stress? Well, interestingly, uh, speaking of stress, the same author, Kelly McGonigal, she has put out another book about stress. Uh-huh. <laughs> and she said it's, um, the research that she used to create this book was astounding to her because she had always spoken of stress in a negative way. And in this book, she just covers a plethora of, of uh, research showing that people who who look at stress not as a negative thing, but as actually as a positive thing, people who can change their perspective on stress, it can actually help them to overcome whatever it is that they're working on in life. And so how that would apply here is one thing that practically that you can do, let's say I have a very stressful job and there's nothing I can do about it. I can't change anything about my job. I can't change anything about my life. The one thing I can do is change my perspective on stress and say, okay, I'm in a very stressful situation and I feel stress, but I believe that God has created me and wired me to rise to the occasion. So rather than see this stress as something that's going to, you know, as an excuse to go drink or commit all kinds of sin or mm. lots of overeat or never exercise, rather than doing that, I'm going to choose to believe that the stress in my life is something that's going to motivate me to rise to the occasion to do a better job of what I'm doing. Yeah. So it's just an interesting twist on what we often assume about stress. Yeah, I get the point. I see that's very practical advice, but I wonder whether it could go too far. I mean, there must be a certain level of stress, which no matter how you think about it, you're still going to be affected. You know, I mean, the power of positive thinking can be only taken so far. There must be some situations which are just so pressurized. Sure. It doesn't matter how you think about it, you're still going to end up with that. Then presumably, it would be a much more drastic approach that would be necessary with that, perhaps by changing your job. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> and that's where, you know, I, I don't want to, I'm not the expert. Hmm. I, I would refer people, the book is called The Upside of Stress. And she actually addresses that question, you know, what you just said. And I don't, I'm currently reading the book, so I don't feel uh, well versed enough to actually address it. But just to to pass on the idea that even how we perceive stress can be one way of helping us with our our willpower and self-control. Yes, yes, okay, yes. I don't want to put you on the spot for all of it. And certainly that's very useful advice, of course, um, just as far as that advice goes. Um, One thing that really interested me is this business about dopamine, because of course, this is an internal drug that people very frequently talk about as being that which gives you a reward for um, whatever it is you're tempted to do, etc. But interestingly, you say that it doesn't really give us pleasure in itself, which is this popular perception, but it's kind of drives us towards locating the object of desire once that desire has already been triggered. So we kind of see something or hear something, whatever it is, so we, we think, oh, that I'm interested in that. Okay, it's, it's wrong in some sense, but because that's been triggered in us, then the dopamine kicks in within us to drive us towards that goal. Well, I've never really heard of that before. Um, yeah. What prompts me question-wise here is, um, okay, we say we've got a wrong desire. Would you say that we should somehow try to preempt the situation, you know, remain vigilant and sort of nip in the bud 
such temptations. Before that dopamine rush can get in there and, and compromise our wills, um, presumably you would agree with that. But how do you do that? I mean, once once it's there and it's starting to trigger us, it's already triggering us, isn't it? Yes, but I think I think you could recognize what your temptations are. I like to use a simple analogy of a donut because it's it's true in my life. But <laughs> I don't mind donuts, but there you go. It doesn't matter. <laughs> I, you understand the principle. Any something simple sure. like that, and you can insert your own temptation. But let's say on my way to work, there's a donut shop, and I just cannot. I've developed this habit of. I just can't pass the donut shop without stopping and buying a donut on the way to work and I'm gaining weight and, you know, it's causing all kinds yep. of problems. So what agreeing with you, I think what I can do is identify, well, there's other roads that lead to my work. And so rather than fall into this old habit of going down that one, the donut road, I can develop a new habit and find maybe there's um, a fresh fruit stand on a different road. <laughs> I develop a different habit. You know, I personally like oranges. So uh, maybe I will go down the road with a fruit stand and every day I'll get an orange. And so I'm still getting a reward. I'm getting a reward for this new road. And that's what that's why I like the donut road. I like the donut road because it gave me a reward. So what I need to do is I need to reprogram myself for a reward that's healthy by taking a different road to get to my work. And I think that's a simple analogy, but I think there's lots of things in our life where we can do that. We can assess the situation and say, okay, I'm getting a reward that I really like. How can I how can I create a new habit where I'm still getting a reward? I'm still happy at the end of the day because of what I've done. But now my happiness comes from something healthy or productive or moral rather than something that's unproductive or immoral. Mm, damaging to oneself in various ways. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, this is what I love about these pieces that you've written. They are so practical. And that seems so simple, doesn't it? You know, you identify something which you can change. Like, you know, these are a list of things that I could do. Simple things, just go down a different road. But we often don't think in those ways. It's great to be reminded, really, that there are these things that we can do. Um, however, I'm coming back to one of these sort of, what I'll call them sort of humanistic questions I have here. Um, you know, doesn't this biochemical explanation here imply that there's no role for Satan. There's no spiritual aspect to this. Um, you know, this is something that's happening in our brain. If only we can recognize that, write our list down, avoid various things, you know, that we'll, we'll be okay. I mean, but normally, and in Christian theology, we think of Satan mm -hmm. actually affecting us in some way, not dopamine. Right. <laughs> right. Well, I think hopefully we can take a broader, more holistic approach and say, Satan is certainly a part of it. I mean, we, we can see that in a very real way when Jesus was 40 days in the desert and being tempted by the devil, by Satan. So mm. we know that's true. Uh, but uh, as I was relooking at some of the scripture that I used in my, my sermons today, where Paul is talking about the power of the flesh and he's talking about temptation and James talked about temptation and being pulled away by our desires, Satan was never mentioned in any of those scriptures. What is being mentioned is our the evil desires, which in Christian theology we often talk about the flesh. It's the sinful nature that's inside of us. So there are these two natures. We have the sinful nature inside of us, but then we also have the Spirit of God inside of us. And they're, like, like Paul said in Galatians, they're at war with each other. Mm -hmm. And we are continually having to choose who we're going to agree with. The sinful nature inside of us, our human selfishness, our greed, our wants, or are we going to agree with what God wants for us? Mm -hmm. And I'm sure, you know, Satan plays in there someplace, but as Paul and James spoke about it, Satan was never mentioned. Yeah. And so... Uh, I don't think that was humanistic of him not to mention Satan. 
It's just that it's very hard to have a discussion where you can include all aspects of the situation in one moment. So I, I just think that's why it's up to us to pull these things together yeah. and understand that it's bigger than any one thing. And I think our problem, one of the reasons we, we fail so much at obeying and self-control and temptation is because we try to be simplistic. We want to say, well, it's just the devil. And I just have to pray against the devil sure. Sure. or something like that. And it's much bigger and broader than how simple as we want to make it sometimes. Or indeed the other way around. Indeed, it's all about dopamine. It's all about controlling the situation. There's no spiritual input whatsoever. <laughs> yes, I totally agree. Yeah, we can fall right. on either side of that. Sure. Um, okay, well, there's this thing called moral licensing that you talk about. Mm-hmm. You do some things that are good, but you, you think wrongly about yourself in some way while you're, mm-hmm. you're doing those good things. And you kind of end up in a worse condition than when you started. What's going on with this moral licensing? How does that work? Yeah, I think moral licensing, I mean, that's something, again, that Kelly McDonald, I don't know if she coined it, but she's that's the phrase that she was using. Mm. And as soon as she started talking about it, I thought, well, of course, we've all done this. And I think it's directly related to the sinful nature in that when we do something, let's say using exercise as my example, if I exercise today for an hour, I feel so good about it, I over estimate how many calories I burned. Let's say I must have burned 2,000 calories. I mean, I I was sweating like a dog. It has to be 2,000 calories. So, you know, I'm going to take that donut road home. (laughs) Donuts are only 300 calories. So I still burned 1,700 even eating the donut. Hmm. Well, the truth is I probably only burned 350 calories at my exercise. And the donut is probably 400 calories. So there's a a net law or a net gain of calories of 50 calories, but that's all moral licensing. That's weak. Those are the mind games that we do to justify ultimately doing what we want to do. Difficult though to control. Mm -hmm. You know, we want to excuse ourselves. You know, what point do you say to yourself, okay, I'm about to deceive myself here. Uh, Don't do it. If you're deceiving yourself, you're already in the process of deceiving yourself. Very difficult to jump in into your own consciousness, as it were, and turn it around. And I think that gets back to that whole idea of self-awareness, just being honest, just saying, okay, I've made this decision to go buy that donut, but but really, Remy, do you really think that you burned 2,000 calories? You just have to pause a minute and be honest with yourself. Even if you have to look it up online, you know, okay, how many calories can you burn in an hour? It's like, oh my gosh, there's no way I could have burned 2,000 calories. I have to deal with reality here. That's not, okay, that's going to affect my decision. I think as long as we don't have facts, you know, we everything, everything gets real fuzzy and we can justify anything. But if you can start yeah. to, to lock into some facts, then you you have to face the facts and say, okay, Remy, a donut is 450 calories, you burn 350 the math doesn't work. You can't do that. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Indeed. That takes time, doesn't it? You've right. actually got to stop. You've got to reflect. And I think this is one of the things we don't do very often in the modern world is that we don't introspect very much. Everything's so busy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, the entertainment industry tends to encourage that kind of attitude in us. We saw the Lego movie too recently. We had to go and see it with our very young son. Uh. Oh, I, I, could, I couldn't bear it. But uh, <laughs> I'm not sure he enjoyed it very much, actually. It was too fast for him. But uh, some of the other children to enjoy but it was just so fast it was just image after image after there was no time to think about what was going on i was hardly aware there was any plot at all to be honest it was just mad Mm. so it's almost as if people are being trained to not not to think about anything really think about life just react so it's very difficult to introspect and i think it's very important as you say we should do we should stop we should think Mm. and uh, question 
what we're doing and the motives of what we're doing and uh, whether we can improve in various ways. Yeah, definitely great advice. Um, and it's really, as yeah. you said that, that's really to slow us down. That's where community comes involved. Yeah. You know, so I'm, as I'm talking to you and, and I'm telling you, well, gee, I just don't understand, Julian. I, I exercise every day, but I'm gaining weight. What? And then you start asking me the tough questions. Well, Remy, you know, and then you, you start, do you realize this and do you realize that? And it's like, oh, you know, so yeah. by talking to you, by, ha- by being engaged with community, community, the community challenges me to be accountable. And that's, you know, when we live all by ourselves, going home and just with no interaction with other humans, it's very easy to justify just about anything. Yes, indeed. One that really uh, interested me was, was this thing of shame. And I think that's very important. With all the things we've been talking about, we can fail. And we very often do feel ashamed. And so there is that temptation then to reach out for the thing that's going to fix it. At least we, we think it's going to fix it. It's going to make us feel good in the short term. Mm-hmm. Very important one. I think we all do that a lot. Um, so my question here is, do you agree with me that you know one of the main truths of the gospel with its insistence that we do live under grace, we don't live under law, the you know, law's are important etc but we live under grace how can that be helpful to us in allowing us to start again you know to be kind to ourselves less self-condemnatory you know i'm not, not talking about allowing us more license mm-hmm. but you know can the that aspect of the gospel counter that shame take away some of the power of it well i think it has a tremendous impact i, I one of the in reading this book the, the willpower instinct they said that a problem with people is that we so often are polarizing. We like to say that we're either we're all good or all bad. Yeah. And so every time we do something bad, we have to label ourselves as bad. And if we're good, then we we have to say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm good today. But most of us have a, a pretty strong sense of our badness. Mm. And she said in the book that if you're so convinced of your badness, so let's say uh, overeating is what I feel guilty about. And I, I work really hard all week to not overeat, but then one night I go out and I just binge and I have too much. The temptation and what often happens is, no, I'm going to beat myself up. I'm going to tell myself I'm a failure. Remy, I knew you are going to do this. This is who you are. You always do this. This is always the end story. And I just heap on all kinds of shame. And most of us think that that's a good thing. That's motivating. Like if the more I beat myself up, the more it's going to make me really tomorrow I'm going to wake up and I'm going to do it better. Right. And she said it's just the research shows just the opposite. The people that are that heap shame on themselves, that tell themselves, you know, kind of punish themselves mentally, they're the people that, that give up. Mm. Where the other people who say, you know, you're a good person, Remy. You slipped up. Okay, that happens. Humans slip up at times. Last night, sure, you don't want to do that, but, you know, pick yourself up. Tomorrow's a new day, and it's going to be better. Those are the people, the people that can have a a more forgiving attitude towards themselves. Those are the people that will ultimately succeed and be able to show more self-control in the the future. Mm. It's hard, though, isn't it, to say, well, actually, really, I'm good. You know, especially if there's some issue in your life that keeps cropping up and you find yourself, you know, at the bottom of the heap yet again kind of thing. And you say, oh, no, well, I'm, I'm really, I'm good. I'm going to be better from now on. And I'm, you know, one of the things that I learned years ago was to take that situation and, and not appeal to myself at all, but to kind of use the gospel as a tool to say, I am loved by God anyway. Right, exactly. And that, that's it goes against your feelings and what you think is right, but it is something that you know to be true. Mm-hmm. And so you grasp it and 
address those feelings. But at no point in that process are you then saying it's okay to do or think what you've just thought, etc. But you're using it as a tool to recognize that God does accept you because of what Christ has done. Right. And I found that so helpful yeah. over the years. Yeah, that even though you don't believe in yourself, that God does. <laughs> and God says, you know, Remy, you might be really upset and, and hate yourself, but I don't. I believe that tomorrow is a new day and that, and that I can give you the power to live a new life tomorrow. So uh, I'm not sitting here condemning you. So why why do you want to condemn yourself? So it's, it's a matter of agreeing with God in those moments and saying, okay, you're right. I'm being too hard. If you, God, if you're not going to be hard on me, then I, I have no right to be hard on, me, on myself either. Yeah, I think that word condemning is important, isn't it? Because it's not that God is actually saying, oh, you know, you're okay. Isn't it? He's not really saying that, but he is not condemning us because of Christ. Right. And therefore, we should not condemn ourselves. I think it's a really, really important one. So thank you ever so much for writing on that and talking about that. Um, I want to come to the next one, the next piece that you wrote. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is uh, Temptation and, and How to Develop Self-Control. Very practical ideas you have in here. Um, I mean, you mentioned about being positive, mm -hmm. keeping positive. I'm no doubt a lot of people will be thinking, as I was thinking when I sent you my notes, positive thinking, isn't that meant in the popular sense? Look, you know, I can be really positive, I can achieve whatever I like, and it's all part of that, just that appeal to uh, the innate power of the human being, etc. Is that what you mean? Uh, no. <laughs> no. <It's, laughs> okay. What I mean by that is just, it's kind of like what I was just saying, as far as choosing your identity, Right now, one of the reasons I came to Mexico is I'm trying, I'm, well, I almost said it right there. I'm, I'm learning Spanish. And it'd be very easy for me to say, well, I'm trying to learn Spanish. Well, but that phrase, I'm trying to learn Spanish, is a certain identity. The identity is, hmm. I'm going to give this a go, but I'm not sure it's going to work and I might fail because I'm just trying. <laughs> yeah. As compared to if I could say, I am learning Spanish. I came here to learn Spanish. I am learning Spanish and I speak Spanish. I don't speak Spanish well, but I, I am a Spanish speaker. That's a positive identity and that's an accurate identity. But so many of us come into it with a negative, I'm ready to fail. Like, like many people say, oh, I'm so, they'll meet me and they'll hear my strange name of Remy. And they'll go, oh, I'm going to forget that. I'm so bad at names. Yeah. <laughs> just, all right. All right. You just wrapped me across right. the knuckles there. All you right. just identified <laughs> yourself as someone who doesn't remember names. So that's you've taken on that identity. Why? Why did you take on that identity? Uh, I used to say the same thing. And I meet so many people. And I, I know hundreds, if not thousands of people. And, and I would always say, oh, I'm just bad at names, which, which was really became my identity, which gave me an excuse to not even try to learn names. Mm. And I caught myself one day and I said, you know, I'm never going to say that again. I'm never going to say that I'm trying, that I'm bad at learning names. I'm going to say I am a person who works at learning names. Okay. That doesn't mean that I'm necessarily going to be great at it, yeah. but it just changes my identity. So that's what I mean by being positive. Uh, yeah. Looking at things like more of a can do, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do this rather than, gee, I hope I don't screw up again. <laughs> Yeah, so it's really, really yeah, very good advice indeed. It's interesting that you bring up languages there because I was just thinking that I tried to learn German as a child. Right. Very definitely tried to learn German. And I keep saying now, it's 30 years on, you know, I keep saying, well, I've forgotten so much. I kind of uh, excuse myself for the fact that I have indeed forgotten so much, but I never think of it in terms of, oh, it's amazing how much I actually remember. So perhaps yeah. I should, yeah, I should change the way I think about that. It might make me more confident and uh, yeah. help me to recall more of those German words. See, that, this is where, you know, you can look at that as humanist 
optimistic thinking, or you can say, no, God wired our brain to be like that. God wired us to be positive, to think mm. positive. And so if we do it, he will work through that natural way that he made us to help us to accomplish these different things. Yeah, it's interesting. And I suppose insofar as we're not positive in the sense you've been describing, maybe that's a result of, theologically speaking, the fall, mm-hmm. um, departing from what we should be, who we should be. Sure. Yeah. Um, okay. Just a few more questions here before we uh, close. Um, sure. You say that we should get a compelling picture of who we want to be. Okay, so this is related to this positivity, really, a compelling mm-hmm. picture of who we want to be. Now, I think a lot of preachers would say what we should want to be, of course, is like Jesus. That phrase comes out an awful lot. You know, he is our pattern, etc. We need to be like Jesus. I think a lot of people would look at that and say that's an incredibly daunting thing to try to achieve. You know, mm-hmm. here is someone whose moral excellence was just beyond, you know, um, and such a you know brilliant teacher, etc. Anybody asked him a question, he was able to wrap them up in, in knots, etc. I mean, how can we, you know, how can we come to terms with that? That's just too daunting, isn't it? I think it is. And I think that's too big of a, of an image. When I say that, and again, I'm just taking this from the book, Willpower Instinct, it's much smaller. So I'll just keep using my example of Spanish. I have a compelling vision of myself preaching in Spanish. Hmm. That's something um, I want to do probably within two years. So I've put a little bit of a time frame on it. And that causes me to always ask the question, especially in my time management I'm at home at night and dinner is done. I've got two hours. Let's say I'm going to watch a two-hour movie, which isn't a bad thing. But I have to ask myself, okay, Remy, you have this compelling image of preaching in Spanish in two years. Will not studying Spanish tonight move you towards that goal? And it's like, well, no, it won't. Okay, that compelling vision is going to help me to choose to study Spanish. Hmm. Maybe I'll watch a half hour TV show and study for an hour and yeah. you know relax for another half hour. I don't know, but the, the compelling vision of preaching in Spanish is going to cause me to choose my time differently than if I don't have a compelling vision. If I don't have a compelling vision, I'll definitely watch the movie, not only tonight, but the next few nights in a row. Yeah. So comparing that to uh, having the image, yes, we should all aspire to be like Jesus. But I think if we can break that down into smaller pieces and having different compelling visions, it'll help us to choose wisely throughout our day. Okay. So you would nuance that, would you, in your own preaching? You wouldn't just say, as so many people do, you know, we should be like Jesus because it is just, you know, it hits you between the eyes and you just think, well, there's no way I'm going to do that. You know, even with the power of the Holy Spirit helping me, I'm never going to achieve that. Yeah. So when you overreach like that, I think that's what causes people to give up and and then Mm -hmm. they give themselves permission to do anything because, well, what you've suggested is way beyond my possibility. So I might as well just not even try. Um, I'm deliberately waiting because in the article you say it's practically helpful to wait. <laughs> you say, <laughs> I, did, I didn't plan that, by the way. I just saw this and I thought I'll shut up for a few seconds. Um, you say maybe waiting for five minutes before you engage in whatever this bad habit is that's having you know, trouble in your life. It's holding you back in various ways in your life. This temptation is there. You know it's there. And you just think, right, I'm going to wait for five minutes. Mm-hmm. Very simple. Yeah. But what I want to ask is, is it effective? Can you really do that? Because so many temptations, just they just happen. 
Right. I don't know whether it's true of everybody, but I, I would say that a lot of temptations in my own life, they're like that. They just happen rather than something that I contemplate. Mm, I'm going to do such and such. Sure. I think it gets back to the self-awareness. So let me use, uh, I'm not a smoker, but I think this works as a good analogy. Let's say that um, I've tried to quit smoking numerous times and it hasn't worked. And so I'm, I'm prone to just give up on the idea because I've tried so much. But now I read about this research in this book that tells me to wait. So this is what the research says. Research says, let's say you always smoke a cigarette after supper. And it's just a habit. You, you've done it all your life. And but you want to start to change if 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 this is a possible idea. So what it says is rather than smoke that cigarette right away, wait five minutes, and just the waiting of five minutes will develop in you a little bit of self control that can start to grow. It just gets a foothold in your life. Mm. And you said, well, but I, it's such a habit. I don't know how to do it. So okay, so you have to be self aware. You have to be aware of, of your habit. Mm. And before you sit down to eat dinner, you want to take your cigarettes and put them like across the house. So you have to think about it when you get up from, so when, when dinner's over and you're ready to grab that cigarette, you go, oh, that's right. I'm going to wait five minutes. My cigarettes aren't here like they usually are. I put them in my bedroom. So you, you set the timer for five minutes and you wait five minutes and you say no to yourself. I'm not going to smoke a cigarette for five minutes. And you still end up smoking that cigarette, which was interesting to me because yeah. I thought if you want to quit smoking, you should just quit smoking. <laughs> but this yeah. is the person that that hasn't worked. They need something else. They need an, another avenue. And so this is for that person. And that is, okay, so wait five minutes. Because once you develop the self-control of waiting five minutes, then you can develop the self-control of waiting 10 minutes. And little by little, mm -hmm. over time, and it might you might not quit smoking in a week. It might take you two years to quit smoking. But at least in two years, you will have quit smoking, right? As compared wow. to never even bothering at trying to do it. Well, if that's true and it does work, that is really fascinating. Yeah. But of course, I'm going to have to come back with something, not exactly a counterexample, but just thinking of something in my own life that I'm struggling with just at the moment. And that's, I can't really prepare for that. I can't imagine how I can prepare for it at the moment. I mean, I have an issue with, you know, if I'm really busy and I've got stuff to prepare and my two-year-old son is just saying, daddy, 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 daddy. There are certain moments when I feel a bit stressed because there are these other things to do and I just go... Can you just, you know, <laughs> shut up? Right, right. It just comes out, you know, and I, I can't put my voice box on a shelf somewhere, mm -hmm. wait five minutes and then go and get it. It's there. It's part of me. Mm -hmm. You know, when those things happen, I do regret it afterwards. And, you know, especially right. if he starts to go, Ooh, you know, you shouted at me and he's wondering why, because all he was just doing is trying to get my attention. Mm -hmm. I feel bad about that, but I can't control it, can I? Does this just perhaps not apply to that situation? What do you think? Uh, I'd have to think that through more. I, I don't know. My my, oh. my first response would be like anything. If you if you're aware, because you you are aware of this, you just told me, so you're aware of this problem. Yeah, yeah. So I think mm. you might be able to come up with a tactic that you could prepare in advance. And so you know you're going to do something. The next time your child gets to that breaking point, you're going to have a tactic that helps you to kind of take a personal time out. I, I don't know what that would be. But I think, oh. I think if you thought that through, you could find a tactic that would help you to develop a different habit. Gosh, yes. I can't imagine what that would be. Heavens. Perhaps employ a sense of humor. Have a banana on a stick or something and <laughs> lift it up in the air. I don't know. Yeah, okay. I'll have to work on that one. Thank you. Yeah. Um, you've already mentioned getting enough sleep. I heard this years ago, actually. Don Carson was preaching and he, he mentioned how important it was just to get enough sleep. And it just hit me as something so simple yet so important. Mm -hmm. And it's true in my own life. Yeah, if I don't get enough sleep, I tend to get depressed mm -hmm. and negative. And then it's harder to control things. Um, but you list a lot of things like exercise 
exercising, eating right, eating healthily, and perhaps very importantly today, limiting device usage, all very sensible stuff, very helpful stuff. Mm-hmm. But how about this one, slow breathing? That immediately struck me as something to do with meditation, or implied meditation. How can slow breathing possibly help such a situation? Yeah, and again, I'm not the expert here. I'm, I'm just passing on what I read, but and I think people have used it uh, in correlation with meditation. Uh, but you can certainly use it in correlation with prayer, you know. Yeah. So just slowing down your breathing pattern for whatever reason, uh, you know. Again, this is all of these recommendations are based on what the research that was laid out in the book. Mm. People that are able to take uh, anywhere from five to twenty minutes. The longer you do it, the more helpful it is. But if you can take up to twenty minutes a day just to slow down your breathing to four or six cycles per minute. Those people have been proven to exhibit more self-control in their life. And I don't have the explanation for it. So four to six cycles. So you're actually talking about breathing and then not breathing again for 15 seconds, that sort of thing. Yeah, or just a very slow taking it in and releasing it Mm. over a 10, 20 second period. Mm. Yeah. I suppose at the very least, it is a focus for slowing down. It gives you a purpose to actually do that. I'm going to breathe slowly. I'm going to stop. And that allows then perhaps the introspection that we were talking about earlier on. I think it it develops that that ability, kind of like choosing not to smoke for five minutes. Mm. It's a focus, intentional thing. And even though they said this is a common problem with people who pray, People will often complain about their prayer life. They say, I just get so distracted. My my thoughts go all over the place. Mm. And the research on that is, well, even if you get distracted in prayer, every time you catch yourself being distracted and and go back to whatever it is you're praying about, that practice of catching yourself and returning to the topic of prayer, that develops self-control. So over time, you know, right now you might feel like a terrible failure at prayer because you get so distracted. But if you continually catch yourself and come back to the the topic of prayer, over time you will gain more and more self-control in general in your entire life and certainly in your prayer life. Your prayer life will, will get more and more focused as you develop that pattern of returning to the focal point. So you mean actually if you're engaged in the business of prayer and you catch yourself being distracted by whatever it is, at that moment you say, oh, I've done that again. Don't give up at that point and then go with that distraction, but Mm -hmm. cut it off and continue praying with what you were praying before. And those gaps between those distractions you take actually get smaller and smaller. That's what the research shows. Right. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? It is interesting. So much of this is interesting. Mm-hmm. As I said before, you know, seemingly simple, but we don't think about these things. Right. So this is why I wanted you to share these with us. I think it's <laughs> right. fascinating. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The last one, I think, again, is important, but open to misunderstanding, misinterpretation. You say, be kind to yourself. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. We're often not kind to ourselves. We, I think you said before, you know, we tend to beat ourselves up. But again, can we be too kind to ourselves? Mm-hmm. You know, you're saying about developing habits. In the habit of being kind to ourselves, can we not get into a habit of doing it so much that we end up not taking these things seriously? Well, I, I guess it's how you define kindness. I mean, kindness to me is um, choosing not to condemn myself, but it doesn't mean that I'm going to let myself get away with all kinds of stuff that I know are, is bad for me. It's not kind of me to let, you know, it's just like it's not kind of you to let your children play with matches. Mm. That's not a kind thing, even though you're, you're, you're just being permissive. You're being passive or you're, whatever. You're not helping your child. So kindness means that you have the best intentions in mind for the person. 
And I think being self-kind, uh, it means you're not going to condemn yourself, but it also means you're not going to be permissive yeah. to, to do destructive things. Excellent. What a nice word, to be self-kind. I like that very much, in the sense that you've just described. Yeah. Yes. Okay, I might even include that in the title, you never know. <laughs> um, oh, well, we've come really to the end of the formal conversation here. I did want to flag up again what that book was that so impacted you. Could you remind us what it is, please, and what the author was? Yes, The Willpower Impact, and it's by Kelly McGonigal. Kelly McGonigal. I will certainly yeah. link to that because people I think will be interested to read that. I'll also be interested to read that as well. Okay, well, thank you ever so much. Uh, now, is it Remy? Remy, I've got oh, it right. You got it. <laughs> For coming on the show again. It's a delight to speak to you again. I enjoyed it very much the first time. Um, I would like to direct people to your website, and I'm afraid I've been very lax today. I haven't actually got it written down in front of me. Could you please remind us what your website is, how they get there? It, it simply it includes my name, so it's readingremy.com. Like reading a book, reading Remy, R-E-M-Y dot com. Okay. And people can freely email you, can they, if they want to ask anything sure. about anything sure. that you've written, indeed, this conversation today. Yeah. What have you got a contact form or something on there? Yeah. So my, you can just go to the website and, and you can click on the place to email me. Or you can simply, uh, my name, Remy Diedrich at yahoo.com is a way to reach me. Uh-huh. And I also have an author page on Facebook, F. Remy Diedrich. Okay, thank you. And I shall link to all those. Uh, well, thank you ever so much again for coming on. It is uh, great to speak to you, uh, especially during this time of your sabbatical. You needn't have said yes, but you did. As you said, you know, you were actually going out when you, you were in the airport at the time. And uh, right. amazingly, you said, yes, yes, I'll speak to you. And I thought that was, that was great. So thanks very much for doing that. Great to speak to you. Thanks for coming on again. You too, Julian. I just want to correct myself. I think I may have given you the wrong name for that book. It's The Willpower Instinct. Instinct. Not, I think I said impact. It's the willpower instinct. Okay, I'll double check that, of course, before I post it up. Okay. Thanks so much. Hope to speak to you again one day. Um, all the best with the, the rest of your uh, sabbatical, and uh, hope you have a safe journey home. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>